Difficult circumstances at that point. But looking ahead, 2023, and it's, it's almost like a newborn baby today. We don't know what life is going to bring us in these next 365 days. But we do know that God is over it all. And whatever God allows in our lives that he allowed in our life last year, we have no idea what he's going to allow this year. And so as I was preparing for this morning... I looked and I said, you know, what kind of message can I bring to give people kind of an understanding and look forward to a new year and so on? And I've done a message before for New Year's, but as I was going through one of my devotionals back in December, I came across this devotion that really piqued my interest, really spoke to my heart, and I prayed about it and God made it clear, this is kind of what I want you to give to the people. And in our world today, we are faced with so many things, whether it be in the church or out of the church, I thought it would be a good reminder for us to look back uh, on our lives in a way um, and then look forward as, as well. And I'm going to use, as you can see in your outline, there's just two verses I'm going to use, but I'm, I'm going to read the whole context of uh, 2 Corinthians 13 and put it in context what Paul is talking about. But before we get started, I just wanted to give you some background, a little history here. And the, the title this morning is Religion or Relationship. Religion or Relationship. Building a New Year on the Right Foundation. Now, if you don't have that right foundation, and I'm going to tell you what it is eventually, you need to rethink where you are even this morning. But I, I promise you that my words are not going to hold any weight. But God's word will. And that's what I hope will speak to your hearts this morning. Usually for New Year's, we make what? Resolutions, right? They're great intentions, but not always carried through, right? Some early resolutions. For early Christians, the first day of the New Year became the traditional occasion for thinking about one's past mistakes and resolving to do better in the future. In 1740, the English clergyman John Wesley, founder of the Methodist uh, Church, created the Covenant Renewal Service, most commonly held in New, York's, or New Year's Eve or New Year's Eve Day, also known as watch night services. They included readings from God's word, singing of hymns, and it served as a spiritual alternative to the craziness and the celebrations that were held each year in the cities where they were. Now, popular with evangelical Protestant churches, watch night services are usually held on New Year's Eve and often spent praying and making resolutions for the coming year, despite the traditions and the religious roots. New Year's resolutions today are mostly secular in practice. And instead of making promises to God, most people make resolutions to themselves and focus purely on self-improvement 
which might explain why such resolutions seem so hard to follow through on. According to a recent research, while as many as 45% of Americans say they usually make New Year's resolutions, only 8% are successful in achieving their goals. But that dismal record probably won't stop people from making resolutions anyway, right? Here are some of the top five most popular resolutions. See if they fit in your, in your category. Lose weight, number one. Eat healthier. Exercise more. Save money. Spend more, <laughs> spend more time with family and friends. Uh, we know whose number one is back there. Depending on the list, way down on any list that I was looking at is anything relating to any kind of religion or spiritualness or church. It is helpful to look at the past year to evaluate the things that we set as goals and what actually we accomplished. However, we very seldom evaluate our spiritual health and determine whether we have grown in our faith or remain the same. Can we look back at just this last year and have a clear view of our spiritual health? It's always easier to look at someone else's health and determine where they are, where their walk is. But we need to look at ourselves before we make any assumptions about others. This is what Paul is addressing in the last chapter of 2 Corinthians. They were so busy, busy examining Paul that they were missing the most important part, and that was to examine themselves. Paul is warning this church before he arrives that if necessary, he will exercise his apostolic authority. But he would rather they solve the issues as he would rather come to encourage them in their faith. This morning we'll be taking a look and see if we are truly in the faith, or more clearly put, in Christ. We'll be looking at three consecutive evidences of our relationship with Christ to see if we are truly believers in Christ. Are we truly followers of Christ? And are we truly committed to Christ? Are we just professors of faith? Do we truly possess that faith? And how do we proclaim that faith through our lives? Lord, I thank you this morning for this opportunity to share your word in this place. Thank you for giving us another year, another day. And we pray, Father, that we seek you even more so in the times we live in. That, Father, that you would help us navigate. Help us be that light. Help us be the salt. Help us be the testimony of your life. So I thank you, Father, as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians 13, chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 13, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Let me start in verse 1 because I want to give you the context of where we're going here. I don't know what yours reads on the title thing, but mine says final warnings. I don't know how many of your Bibles have that on the top as a title. It says final warnings. Pretty serious. It starts, Paul, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
I warned those who sinned before and all the others on my second visit that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for the tearing down. Finally, brothers... Rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Pretty intense words. But what I want to focus on this morning is verses 5 and 6. And that's what we're going to be teaching on this morning, but in the context that we just read. I'm going to read it from the Amplified Version. It gives you a little bit more depth. It says, Test and evaluate yourself to see whether you are in the faith and living your lives as committed believers. Examine yourselves, not me, or do you not realize and recognize this about yourselves by an ongoing experience that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test and are rejected as a counterfeit? But I hope you will acknowledge that we do not fail the test, nor are we to be rejected. Earlier in this second letter, Paul in chapter 11 states the problem in verses 12 through 15. He says, and I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. What are some types of exams? Well, physical exams, eye exams, academic exams, the bar exam, medical exam, SAT exam, entrance exam, and so on. The list could be quite extensive. But in all the exams we are exposed to, the least mentioned, if at all, is the most important one. And that is one of a spiritual exam. You may wonder what's the difference between an exam and a test. 
A test refers to a procedure where your knowledge is tested about a certain lesson. An exam refers to a procedure where your knowledge about a number of lessons is tested. Tests are less formal in nature. Exams are more formal. Tests are a more simplified process where exams are a more in-depth process. The primary difference between a test and examination is the fact that they both denote different types of assessments. A test is usually a smaller and less important assessment as compared to an examination. An examination, on the other hand, has usually more important than a test. A tests are usually connected or conducted at the end of a semester or at the end of a year or the end of a period of somewhere. And self-examination is not a new concept. We find this throughout God's word. Lamentations 3.40 Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Job 13.23 How many are my iniquities and sins? Make known to me my rebellion and my sin. Psalm 26.2 Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way of everlasting. Galatians 6, 4. But each one must examine his work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. There are many other verses in scripture that talk about self-examination. Why? Why would there be so, such a place and so many? And I think it's clear. We are to look at ourselves and evaluate ourselves from time to time to see where we are spiritually. And that assumes that you're a born-again believer. But if you're not, you still need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. That's what Paul's concern is. There are four key words in these verses I want us to focus on this morning. The first word is the word test, perizio, to make proof of, to put through a trial is this word used, and it's used to process metals, to heat them in such a way to have the impurities or the dross rise to the top so they can be revealed and removed and the purity of the metal is retained. That's the word. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice greatly, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, which is much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested and purified by fire, may be found to result in your praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Next word is the word faith, pistos. Faith is always a gift from God. It's never something produced by the person. The Lord continuously births, births that faith in a yielded believer. This faith is supernatural in its origin. Faith to do his will. Faith to understand his word. Faith 
to trust in his promises. Romans 12, verses 2 and 3. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's faith. The next word, examine. Dokumazo. To prove the genuineness of something. Demonstrate what is real and what is fake. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And the final word is the word recognize. Epigenotsko. To know exactly, clearly, specifically, directly through the right relationship in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 13. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. This morning we'll be looking at three key points. Has your profession of faith become your possession of faith? And are you living the proclamation of your faith? Profession. Test and examine yourself in relation to his son. Possession. Test and examine yourself in relation to his word. Proclamation. Test and examine yourself in relation to how you live. We are all too familiar with the conditions at Corinth, which are not unlike the conditions we live in here in California, as well as the rest of the nation and even into the world. In fact, many so-called churches today are embracing such behaviors as they did in Corinth and even encouraging it in spite of what they believe the Bible says about such things. Our churches have been infiltrated with worldly philosophy, cultural agendas, and social changes. We are in many cases submitting and surrendering to the dictates of a corrupt and evil world. We have become ignorant and desensitized to the truth of God's word. We have become lazy in our understanding, willing to accept without investigating. We tolerate because we are fearful of the consequences that our society may impose upon us. We have become compromised to the very truth we say we believe. But Paul did not give up on Corinth. How patiently he worked with his church, his letters, and the visits that he has made with his associates have a span of approximately three years. And all that time he labored to try and correct the things that were wrong, to bring that church to an effective, impacting ministry there in that great pagan commercial city. But now as we come to the end of the second letter to his Corinthian church, Paul has been steadfast and consistent in his admonishment. 
Most of the church has repented and changed its attitude towards him. And he has rejoiced over that. But there are still a handful of people that are still following false teachers who have come in. And there are still some who are living disobedient lifestyles and believing false teachings, which is causing dissension and division within the church and even questioning Paul's apostleship. The apostle has already told them that there is nothing left except public exposure when he comes. And when he comes, he says, he is going to do just that. However, before his arrival, he confronts them with one final appeal, which he hopes will change their attitudes, causing them to repent and to reveal if they are truly in the faith. The challenge is found in chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, as I said before. And look, as it's written in the original language, it reads this way. Yourselves examine. Yourselves test. Yourselves recognize. Paul is saying, don't be busy looking at me, but look at yourself. The challenge this morning is for each one of us, as believers, to look at ourselves. As a non-believer, this is even more dangerous. And I'll tell you why. The first point is profession of faith. Romans 10, 9 through 10 shows the value of a profession of faith in Christ. It says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is written with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Professions of faith are usually followed by a complete change of heart. Those who are saved will speak of their salvation, even when that profession could lead to death, as it did in Rome, and it does today. I just received in the mail um, um, Mar the Book of Martyrs, a magazine that they put out, talking about the persecution that's going on in our world, right now, all over the world, of Christians being murdered because of their faith. That profession is real. That profession is real. To profess something is to openly declare it. When we use the term profession of faith, we usually refer to a person's public declaration of his or her intent to follow Christ as Savior and Lord. Because words do not always reflect the true condition of the heart. A profession of faith is not always a guarantee for true salvation and should always be evaluated by the life that is lived after that profession. We are to test and examine ourselves in relationship with his son. Is Christ in you? Paul exhorts every individual in that church to ask themselves that question. This, of course, is because all wrong behavior leads at least to that question. Somewhere, somehow, when we are out of line with the biblical principles set in God's word, we have to ask ourselves, as a believer, where am I, where is my weakness? As a non-believer, am I truly a believer? Or am I just giving my profession lip service? 
Is my faith the faith that is described in God's word, or is it my interpretation of what I think it should be or what I'm comfortable with? Those of us who claim to be believers need to ask that question periodically through our Christian life. It's a good idea to examine ourselves to see where we're at. Are we growing in our faith? That's what the apostle is asking, especially if there is any kind of wrong behaviors that are involved that are consistently contrary to God's word. We can't have true faith unless we accept God's word. They cannot be separated. They are one and the same. We cannot say we accept Christ, but reject part or all of his word. John 1, very familiar, verses 1 through 5, makes this real clear. In the beginning, before all time, was his word, Christ. And the word, Christ, was with God. And the word, Christ, is God himself. He was continually existing in the beginning, co-eternal with God. All things were made and came into existence through him. Without him, not even one thing was made that has come into existence. In him was life and the power to bestow life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines on in the darkness. And the darkness did not understand it or overpower it or appropriate it, or absorb it. It was unreceptive to it. In the beginning was the word. You can't accept Christ as your Lord and Savior if you don't accept his word. It's incompatible. His word will not be understood without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will not be present unless Christ exists in your heart. We cannot say we believe when we really don't truly believe just because we have made a profession but we have not accepted the word of his truth. Many of us have seen or heard celebrities, athletes, government officials, family members, even others within our churches who profess to believe. But given enough time, it reveals that it wasn't real. It was just a profession profession how many churches have elevated celebrities they find out they made a profession of faith and they put them on the platform and a month or two later you find out they are totally not even following God that's our human ignorance allowing that to happen because of their name because of their status an outward profession is not by any means an automatic possession of God's grace. We may say the right words. We may even agree with his word and acknowledge that Christ is our Savior. And we are in need of his forgiveness. But that's as deep as it goes. Our lives may change for a moment. We may have had an emotional experience. We may have even fallen on our knees, raised our hands, said a prayer. But has Christ truly become your life, not in part, but completely? However, there are risks involved when you make that profession. You may need to change friends, change locations, change churches, rethink deep-rooted false beliefs that you grew up with. Loyalties need to be measured and evaluated. 
There is a cost, but that was paid on the cross. Do you really understand and truly believe that? Now, the fact that the apostle could ask a question like that indicates that those are marks of true Christianity. A Christian, of course, is not simply one who joins a church. However, many appeal that that is the standard, but it's not. The four walls of a church do not make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. True faith is in Christ and only in him. There are millions of church members in this country today who are not true born-again believers. Adhering to certain moral standards in your life is not a profession of faith. Or the fact that you consistently read a devotional or may even sometimes open up your Bible doesn't necessarily mean that you're a follower of Christ. We must be born again, John 3.3. We must follow Christ as Lord of our lives by faith. We must be committed to be obedient to his word. A profession of faith is the starting place for a lifetime of growth if it's a true profession. Remember, it's not a religion. It's a relationship. Professions are easy and sometimes common. But, point number two, the real thing is the possession of faith. Test, examine in relation to his word. The first one was in relation to his son. Now it's in relation to his word. Acts 5.29, but Peter the apostle answered, we must obey God rather than men. Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Luke 11.28, but he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. John 14.15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And further in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. A true follower is someone in whom Christ dwells. And the person in whom Christ dwells will have certain inescapable evidence of the fact that that exists. That's what Paul is suggesting. We ask ourselves, do we have the evidence that Christ lives in us? Has a fundamental change occurred at the very core of our being? The question really becomes, have you really been born again? Or are you just changing your outward behavior? Is your mind being renewed each day through the truth of his word? That's what leads to behavioral changes. That's what leads to our life changes. Not our intentions. Those are temporary. But God's word is eternal. That affects how we live our life. The term born again has been adopted by other religions and very distorted by the world in which we live. Many people who 
merely change their actions for a little while are categorized as born again, only to be revealed that truly they are not. But this is what Paul is asking. Are you truly and permanently different because Jesus Christ has come to live within you? His accusers were challenging Paul's faith and he reversed it and asked them, hey, test yourselves. Examine yourselves. If my gospel is not true, it'll show. But if it is true, it'll also show. How can I know truly if I'm born again? Well, the answer is found in several places, and I'm going to read those to you. The first one is, it gives you inner peace. Romans 8, 16, Paul says, God's spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Witness of the spirit that we are children of God. That's one way of knowing. There's an inner testimony, a desire, a sense within us produced by the spirit of God who dwells that you are part of of the great family of God. Scripture also suggests that this will be sometimes taken the form of the sense of identity, looking at God as Father. The Holy Spirit will identify with his word and give us understanding and knowledge that we didn't have before. There is an intimacy created with an almighty God, if it's real. I don't know how many of you recently or in the past have had the opportunity and, and privilege to lead someone to the Lord. Years ago, I remember we went through classes when we were first believers, Shelley and I, and at the church we were attending, people would fill out little forms as they do here and ask for visitations. And we, they would get a phone call from the secretary of the church and set up an appointment and we would get it and go out on a Tuesday night or whatever in groups of three whether it be two guys and a, and a girl or two girls and a guy and so forth, knock on the door and say, hey, we're from church and we see on here that you would like more information. Well, we had and learned a, lack of a better term, a canned presentation. Okay? And we knew the four spiritual, the, the road, the four Romans road, and we went through that process, gave our testimony and so forth. There were times that we knew, that we saw God. Made a difference in that person's life. And from that point on, they were committed believers. Sometimes there were people that just professed, we never saw them again. But there were those that God allowed to show us how real it is. To be born again is not our doing. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says that. If it was up to us, we would be all over the ego train explaining how wonderful we are and how God had to choose us because we are such a humble person. Really? <laughs> to, to see the transition of a new believer is to see God working through Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit, changing a person's life from the inside out. Our world tells us to change from the outside in. God works on our heart, our attitude, our minds, renewing them. That changes our behavior. That's the witness of the Spirit. That's one of the chief marks. Scripture also talks about an inner peace in Romans 5.1. 
Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The sense of conflict with God has ended. The war is over. We are conscious that the problem of our evil and our sin no longer troubles God. The work of Christ has justified, satisfied his justice. Therefore, we have a sense of peace. We have a sense of destiny, an assurance of going to heaven when we leave this earth. That it's settled, and not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. That peace is the one that marks the witness of the Spirit of Christ in us. God's word in 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3 also. He says, So put aside every trace of malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and hateful speech. Like newborn babies, you should long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may be nurtured and grow in respect to salvation, its ultimate fulfillment. If, in fact, you have already tasted the goodness and graciousness and kindness of the Lord. Wow. And again, we think of that, all I have to do is I have to quit doing that, stop doing that, don't see that, don't look, no, that's not it. It's got to be a conviction from God that takes a desire. I remember smoking, and I wanted to quit smoking. And I would say, okay, I'm going to take my cigarettes, I'm going to put them here. I knew where they were. If I really wanted a cigarette, I'll go and get them. So Shelly would put them somewhere. Well, then I'd bother her or look through the cabinets or whatever it was. That was me trying to do it in my own strength to stop smoking. But there was one time, I don't know when it happened, the desire was taken away. I had nothing to do with it, and that's, that's the truth. And those of you who have gone through that understand that. When God does it, when God takes the desire away, it's done. Now, you may have temptation. There's no doubt about it. We're still sinners, right? But it's what we do with that. What we do with that. You see, the Bible is an incredibly supernatural book. It speaks with tremendous interest to the things that are essential to our faith. It's a book of supernatural knowledge, supernatural understanding. It's God's word. It's living and sharper than two any two-edged sword, it says. Think of it this way. It is the voice of God to humanity about who he is and who we really are. <laughs> there should be a hunger and a desire to know and to study God's word and then put it into action. That's another mark of a possessor of Christ. Even within my own life, I've experienced many times being under pressure, facing trials, experiencing loss, overwhelmed by life, and sometimes just feeling complacent. The only words that will speak to me, most of the time, for me anyway, is the book of Psalms. That book there has gotten me and others, including Shelley, through many difficult times. We focus in on God's promises because that reassures our hearts of doubt, our hearts of despair, our hearts of anxiety. Those things 
those promises. Cut through all that. Struggles are a challenge, right? Solomon said, though, there's nothing new under the sun. Way back in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, the Spirit of God creates that hunger in us, and that will be one of the marks, because you understand what Christ did on your behalf. There's a fundamental change in your life. The Spirit of God has entered and released new life in you through Christ, which literally means, literally means Christ in you. That's what Paul is saying. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians to ask themselves, does Christ live in you? Have you been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light through your faith? So, not only have you professed your intent for Christ, but do you truly possess God's salvation in Christ? And finally, there is the proclamation of your life in Christ. To examine yourself in relation to how you live. 1 John 2, 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I, don't, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, is, wow, a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. But by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now we're not perfect, but our life needs to reflect that walk. James 1, 22 through 25, familiar verses. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away. And at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. I want to translate that and say in his life. He will be blessed through his life, in his life. This is a great one, Ephesians 6, 6 and 7. Not in the way of eye service, working only when someone is watching you, and only to please men, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord, and not only for them, for men. And finally, Titus 1, 15 and 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the corrupt and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are corrupted. They profess to know God, to recognize and be acquainted with him, but their actions they deny and disown him. They are detestable and disobedient and worthless for good work of any kind. Does that sound serious? 
Now this interchange will also produce an outward change. We can answer the question, is Christ in you, by observing the conduct. Because interchange will produce different attitudes. One of the noticeable things about a new believer is that they invariably begin to reveal a totally different attitude toward things they once said were okay or thought they were okay. Some of them, and I'll put most of us, were living Romans chapter 1 in many types of sin. Not only living them, but accepting and promoting that type of behavior. We have that in our world today. Not only accepting, but promoting. That's why it's important that politics is not going to change. Hearts need to be changed. That'll change the politics, if at all. Hearts need to be changed. That's where our focus needs to be. No matter who's in the presidency, who's our congressman, who's our senator, they only have a little bit to do. It's the heart. When they truly become born again, they suddenly see these things as injurious, injurious, hateful, disobedient, and dishonoring to God himself. They no longer want to have any part of them. They may have struggled in that area of their lives, but their desire is now different. Something within them has changed. There's a new strength that they have to be able to change because they haven't been able to do it before. We are never free from sin as believers, but we don't usually camp out there, right? We should be convicted. When we're convicted, we repent. Why? Because we've been forgiven. And we need to run towards the word, not away from the word. Because guess what? No one of us can hide. None of us can hide from God. Although we think we can, and we'd like to, we can't. That's our desire. Not to settle back in old lifestyles, but to surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit and rely on his strength in our weakness. This is what Paul is doing. Test and examine yourself, he says. Others who are watching can't answer that question completely. They don't know whether there's something you've been doing is only temporary or if it's the real you in your real life. Here is the issue. The question you may ask yourself at this point is, how do you feel about that behavior? Are you glad to get back into it? It pleases our flesh, we know that. Do you see it as something that represents a kind of religious kick you were on? But you're glad to be back at it, somewhat normal part of your life that existed before? Did you turn and run from God? Or did you run towards him? Where is your loyalty? That commitment you professed and said you believed. Are you really a true follower of Christ? Have you been changed? The answer to that question, Paul says, will also answer the question that the Corinthians were asking him about his apostleship. Paul, are you really an apostle? He says, yourselves examine. Yourselves test. Yourselves recognize. There are many 
ways in which we can identify if we are believers or not believers. These are just some of them. But I love at the end of of Paul's letter, it shows his heart and truly what he really wants to accomplish. And he says in the very end of verse 10, he says, I write this while I'm away from you in order that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority, which the Lord has given me for building up, but not for tearing down. That's Paul's heart. That's Paul's heart. We forget that principle sometimes today. It's real easy to tear down, isn't it? It's real easy to see faults in others. It's real easy to say, what are they doing? I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I've said this many times. When you're pointing your finger at somebody, you have three pointing back at you. So be careful when you're pointing somebody else's out. Then Paul says, in verse 11, he says, Finally, brethren, farewell. Mend your ways. Heed my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And all the saints greet you. He's encouraging the Corinthian church. Telling them, look beyond your situations, your issues, because they are far lower than the issue of your relationship with Christ. That's the important part. Here's why it's important to not just be a professor, but a possessor. There was a man driving down the freeway, and a car cut in front of him, almost driving him off the road. Then it cut in ahead of a car, ahead of him, recklessly, in and out of traffic. But the man gazed and looked. Notice the bumper sticker on the back. The difference in me is Jesus. Well... The man, however, was not impressed by that statement, and neither is the world impressed when they look at us and see us behaving just like they are and just like everybody else. We are not to behave that way in our personal lives because Christ is in us. We are not to behave in our church life because Christ is among us. We are to be friendly, loving, open, forgiving, not condemning, narrow, or bitter, We are to be active in our faith, not complacent or complicit with the world. We understand for what is biblical, not social, not political, not cultural. We are different because Christ is in us. Notice how the apostle closes in verse 14. What a beautiful doxology, and that means an expression of praise. He says, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace, the love of God, love, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What a revelation. There's the Trinity. Isn't that amazing? It's one of the most clear evidences of the Trinity in the New Testament. 
What is our true profession? Is it real? 1 Corinthians 10.31, we profess the Lord Jesus in everything we do and seek to glorify him. Is he our true possession? Is it faithful? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name, perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Those are professions of faith that aren't possessions of faith. This is serious. Is our life a true proclamation? Is it visible? Colossians 1, 9 and 10. For this reason, since the day we heard about it, we have not stopped praying for you, asking specifically that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom, with insight into his purpose, and an understanding of spiritual things, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, displaying admirable character, moral courage, and personal integrity, to fully please him in all things, bearing fruit in every good work, and steadily growing, growing in the knowledge of God, with a deeper faith, clear insight, and fervent love for his word. Wow, that's a challenge. That is a lifetime challenge, lifelong challenge. Those are possessors. That's the difference. Here are some true marks, and you can test and evaluate, examine. Have you humbled yourself and acknowledged and admitted that you are a sinner, missing the mark of perfection, which is God's standard in need of his grace of forgiveness? Secondly, have you surrendered your life in whole to the only one who gave himself on behalf on the cross to pay your debt that you owed for your sin? Third, do you have a hunger and a desire to know him, the one who has given you salvation? Do you have a hunger and a desire for his word and a willingness to submit to it? Has your life and lifestyle changed to honor and glorify him? Are you at peace and able to share this incredible change with others? The final question is, are you truly a follower of Christ or just a well-seasoned impersonator? I hope and pray that these, this letter to the Corinthian church will mean much to us. That we too will obey the word of the apostle and recognize that when Jesus Christ is among us, we cannot be the same kind of people we were before. This is the issue. Many of us have made professions of faith. Many of us possess that faith. Many of us proclaim that faith. But if you're only a professor, you don't have the other two. My prayer to you is if you're a professor, to examine whether you truly possess Christ and truly living for Christ. That's the issue.
Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. Thank you, Father, for the depth, the breadth of your word. That, Lord, that all who have heard your words, not mine, would evaluate themselves according to who you are, according to the word you've given, according to the authority you have. I pray for all those who have made professions, Father, but may not possess, that, Lord, that you would shake them to the core because they can't go through life thinking they know you when you say, be gone, I don't know you. Lord, open up their eyes and their hearts so that you may set them free. We thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.